Eric, what is that catchy music we use for our intro? Jason, I'm so glad you asked, and I'm delighted <laughs> to tell you about that. Uh, well, that's a band that I played in called Nanox. And, uh, it was called Nanox? So, not Nano you know, X? Well, I mean, that's up for debate. You know, it was named by uh, Takahiro Shimizu. You're kind of the songwriter, bass player, singer. And he knew he wanted, like, Nano, like, little, and X, like, mysterious. But he wanted the whole thing to be called Nanox. So th- that, I mean, we started that, I started that right after I moved there. Like, maybe 2005. And we right played, after you moved to Tokyo. Yeah, to Tokyo. We played every weekend for years. I mean, we just... I mean, relentlessly, we we just played every show. We were all, we were the opening band on. If there were five or six bands on a bill, we were the first at six thirty, and nobody came. Hmm. Um, but I thought we were really good. Um, you I know, I really liked really that. Good. He, thanks. He, I mean, he had great ideas, and I, I really felt like like they were exciting song ideas that I had something that I could contribute to from the perspective of organ and but my main point where i'm trying to go with that i think i have two things i would like to get to one they're still going to this day so if you are in tokyo and you want to go see nanox you can go see nanox oh, playing same drummer takahiro um they're probably doing a lot better without a white guy in the band <laughs> yeah i was really dragging them down so they're still going and then another funny thing i couldn't believe this like uh I'm not going to name a year on this, but we, I still live there. So we, we have been going for many years and then they came out with like a, a big, like a big brand, a big budget of like, kind of like a detergent cleaner called Nanox. <laughs> so like if you go to like a grocery store, you can buy all these product products called Nanox. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Who, what other insane Japanese person thought N-A-N-O-X in all capital letters was something that they should like name themselves. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. That's unbelievable. Awesome. So that's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We joked about that, sure. <laughs> um You know, I think maybe we should do a special episode uh in which your former bandmates kind of talk about what it's like to be in a band with you. <laughs> see, see if there are any kind of cross-cultural differences. I mean, there were like I, you might relate to this a bit. Like, for I moved to Tokyo when I was twenty-eight. I never felt particularly American. I just felt like like a guy. And then living in Tokyo and doing these like three-hour band practices from like nine to midnight. And maybe people want to like crash at someone's place until five in the morning and wake up and go to work and then do these like weekend the recording and mix downs and you travel and like nobody eats. Like just because <laughs> Japanese guys just don't eat. And I was like, <laughs> a- after sort of like maybe like two phases, one would be like appreciation. Like we would practice for like three hours and the result of that would be one part of a guitar line that was repeated once in one song would be slightly altered. Mm. And I was like, so that's why like (laughs) bands like the registrators that have such insane attention to detail and that I like appreciate and love diving into that world is so great. And then on the other hand, I was like, we we would write a song and and play it once and then discard it and then write another song. And I was kind of like, I just felt, I found myself wanting to be very American and just be like, let's, you know, get it together. Like, let's practice for an hour once before the show and play the show and then move on because, like, it doesn't matter. It made me feel, 
it made me feel very American. I realized I was like the odd man out and uh, I had to kind of conform to that. Uh-huh. So it was an interesting experience for sure. Hmm. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Jason, how do you feel? How do you feel about being an American? Uh, six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was, I was trying. I was trying to find my. I was trying to find my segue back into uh, what I was going to say was. Two of your former bandmates are featured in our next guest's book. Great. I know one, Mark. Why is the other one not coming to oh, mind faster? I'm, I'm the other one. I was also. <laughs> yeah. I guess I was not thinking different bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Technically, uh, we we were we were on a technicality bandmates. I mean, I love that band, but what are you fucking talking about? We were trapped in a van in multiple countries together. <laughs> like we were in a band. Together. I loved it. It was a big. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big part of my life. That was huge. I loved it. So yeah, joining us this time is uh, Anna Fifield. She's currently the Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post. Before that, she was the Post's Tokyo bureau chief, which also had her covering the Koreas. Uh, she's the author of what I think is the best book on North Korea out there, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in it. Uh, it's called The Great Successor, The Divinely Perfect Destiny of Brilliant Comrade Kim Jong-un. Uh, and In spite of that book's greatness, you won't actually hear us talking too much about it in this podcast because I've actually already interviewed Anna about it earlier this year for themodernist.com. So do go check out that interview on the site. Um, In it, she talks a lot about the process of painstakingly reconstructing the life of Kim Jong-un from his early childhood through his education in Switzerland, through his becoming the dear leader in the years since, uh, which is where I make my cameo as the knucklehead who thought bringing Dennis Rodman to North Korea was a good idea. Uh, It did seem like a good idea at the time. In the book, The Great Successor, Anna tracks down Kim Jong-un's aunt and uncle who live right here in the USA, reveals that I wasn't the first person who thought up sending Rodman to North Korea. That honor belongs to the CIA. She provides amazing anecdotes about Kim Jong-un as a six-year-old from Kenji Fujimoto, who is Kim Jong-il's personal Japanese sushi chef turned Richard Pryor-style playmate for young Kim Jong-un. Um... My favorite part of that interview, which again you can read online at themodernist.com, is that she kind of explains how Kim Jong-un's time in Switzerland may have actually cemented his totalitarian tendencies. Uh, But, you know, fear not, we will talk to Anna about North Korea in the podcast because there's always something new to talk about when it comes to North Korea. Um, But before we get started, I do want to suggest that you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss our upcoming episodes, which of course will be amazing. And uh, I want to encourage you to share your comments and questions with us via Twitter. Our handle is the underscore modernist. So yeah, feel free to at us. Um, so yeah, let's talk to Anna. I don't hear anything. Oh, there we go. Here I am. Hi. Hello. <laughs> how Hello. are you? Good. How are you? Hi, Eric. Hi, Jason. Hello. Hi. So, uh, I have just discovered there's construction on my side of the building. This is oh. Beijing this morning. But, uh, 
So I'm going to move to my colleague's office on the other side. Okay, great. Yeah, so happy, happy Friday. What, what happens in Beijing on Fridays or the weekends in general? Well, I mean, every weekend in, uh, in China, pretty much, I go up to the Great Wall. It's so close to Beijing, and like that's my chance to get the week out, walk around on this on the Wild Wall. It's called. So lots of scrambling with dogs and children and things, and eating delicious food out there. So it's good. So that's what I'm doing tomorrow. Yeah, that's interesting. I that just reminded me. I visited Japan once. I had like a three day weekend. I, sorry, I visited Beijing once. I had like a three day weekend while I was living in Japan. I went around the Forbidden City. I don't think I realized that the Great Wall was all that close. Um, it must have crossed my mind to go visit it, but uh, I didn't. I'm interested that that's a place you could return to like regularly and still enjoy going and, and get something out of it every time. Yeah, well, there's a little village up there. Well, there are lots of little villages up there, but there's one where uh, a group of friends and I, we all have a weekend house. So we can go up there all the time. It's like super cheap and very Chinese. It's a totally Chinese village. So it's our way to kind of have some normal Chinese life, get some exercise, you know, waking up, blue skies, fields of corn. It's not what you think about as, you know, Beijing life being like. So I think it's my way of hopefully keeping sane uh, amid the increasingly difficult conditions I face at work during the week. Yeah, I bet. That's very interesting. Yeah, I have, this is, we talked about a bunch of stuff we're going to talk about, and this is already veering way off the path. Like I said, I was there for like a few days and I came right from Japan. Japan, very safe. You can just kind of, you don't worry about getting robbed or really scammy things. And when I was walking around uh, the Forbidden City, like the number of people, I, there was just so many people who wanted something. They wanted to sell you art or walk with you or whatever. And I was very, I kind of got my guard back up. I'm going to try and keep this anecdote brief and just ask you if you experience stuff like this regularly or how you deal with it. Eventually, this one guy was like, hey, I just want to speak English. Let me walk with you for like three minutes and I'm going to leave you alone. And I was like, he, I could kind of tell, like I was teaching English so I could tell. He was sincere. So we walked around a bit and then he, he was fine. And then he kind of took off and I was like, okay. And then this other lady kind of said like the same thing. And I was like, okay, we'll like walk around a bit. And um, if there was anything like sketchy, I would have just like bailed, but it just seemed really normal. And like, I was bored. The guy I was visiting in Beijing was like working or something. And she's like, do you want to go drink tea? I was like, yeah, that actually does sound like a nice thing to go do here. And I think she probably really lucked out with me. We kind of started walking like near the Forbidden City. There's like a street with like a row of tea houses. And she kind of let, like if she was trying to like sway me into one, I would have been, again, I would have had my guard up. But we kind of passed a few and then I went this one and she was like, okay, sure. So we go in, We there's tea, it's perfectly normal. And then they like present a bill and it was like, I was I wasn't that familiar with the currency then and even less so now and I'm like I'm even though I'm sure I'm not off by a zero here this is like $800 like they don't <laughs> yeah. even know like how It's much a well-known scam. You did you fall for it? <laughs> 
Well, so I was actually nervous because I was like, well, one, I'm not paying this. And I was like, I, I don't have that. And they're like, well, you can use a credit card. And I was like, the issue isn't the means of payment. The issue is I'm not paying this. <laughs> and I was wondering, like, what's going to happen when I just walk out of here without paying this? Like, am I in any physical danger? I think I threw down the equivalent of like 20 bucks. Still probably a pretty good day for them, more than I really would have wanted to pay for tea. And I left and just got in a taxi and got out of there and it was fine. But, um... Yeah, that was just interesting because, again, like just from where I had been living in Japan, there's just nothing like that going on. That's a known scam? Did that sound yeah, familiar to you? Yeah, that's a well-known scam. I mean, so, I mean, that, yeah, it happens. I've heard about it. I've never experienced it because, you know, I live here, so I don't do that many touristy things unless people come into town. Um, but... You know, it's weird because for me as a journalist, it's so hard to talk to ordinary Chinese people now. Like the political climate is such that, you know, if you find someone who can speak English, they don't want to talk about anything remotely political. You know, I'm like, wow, here I have a chance to have a conversation with somebody. And like I've had taxi drivers say, you know, well, I can't discuss this with you because you're a foreigner. And things. So, um, yeah, so it's this tension between wanting to uh, yeah, talk to people all the time and find as many like Vox Pops as I can, ordinary people, and, um, yeah, and having them face these internal self-censorship kind of restrictions. So, I mean, I mm-hmm. moved here from Japan, and I have to say that I found it so refreshing to arrive in China because in Japan, you know, as a journalist, you go to interview people and things and they'll never give you a straight answer because they're being so polite and like maybe instead of just saying no and things so when I arrived like came off the plane from Japan arrived at passport control the immigration woman looked at me looked at my passport looked at me and said wow you got really old and I was like, yes, I'm in China where they tell it like it is. I'm not in Japan anymore. Um, and I was like, yes, you're right. I did. It was only two years ago, but I did. <laughs> That's great. And that appreciation, the longer you've lived there, you, you still uh, get a sense of that and still appreciate that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I like the it's more frenetic and chaotic and things and mm-hmm you know, messier and louder than Japan. I mean, there are many things I liked about Japan as well, but um, but I am really enjoying living here in China. I think it's really fun and exciting and, um, you know, lots of different sides to China. Um, but yeah, my work life is quite different from my personal life there, I guess, because, yeah, work-wise, it's getting more and more difficult. The government's becoming more and more controlling and repressive to everybody, including journalists, so... It's challenging. How did that move come about? I mean, were you something of a China expert before the getting this gig or? uh, Yeah. Um, No, not at all. I had spent four years living in Korea, South Korea, four years living in Japan. You know, China is the big story. Right. And so I there was always this pull. I was always really fascinated by China and I'd spent time here reporting but I'd never lived here Um, so I really wanted that challenge uh, and it seemed like the next logical step for me Uh, but you know I was 
cautious about it because I was worried about their air quality. And so that's been a huge surprise and that the air quality has improved a lot. I mean, there are still murky days and bad days, but many, many fewer than there were a few years ago. Uh, and the bad days are not so bad anymore. So the environment uh, has been better than I expected and makes it yeah, easier to live here. Why has the environment um, improved? Is that just as simple as like companies cutting down on emissions or is there more to it than that? It's the government telling the companies to cut down on emissions because this became a really huge concern, not just for, you know, foreigners living here, but Chinese people were really beginning to grumble about it. You know, the air quality was at like extremely hazardous level all the time in the winter. Um, So this became a potential source of discontent and political unrest in China that the government did not want to allow happen. So they, um, yeah, they've ordered factories to close, car rationing, cars off the road, uh, forced industrial factories and things to move further outside of Beijing. And altogether, it's um, it's really had a huge impact, so much so that now Beijing has fallen off the list of the world's 200 most polluted cities. So it's been done with iron-fisted control, but for the 25 million people who live in Beijing, it's been a good thing. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Good for them. Mm-hmm. You know, you said that China is the big story, and I think that living in the U.S., we do have a sense that... China is a major player on the world stage and things that happen in China uh, do impact ordinary Americans' lives. But at the same time, you know, I count count myself among these people. I think very few Americans know jack shit about China. And I I wonder, you know, if is there a, a good book or a documentary you can recommend? Like where where does one start to try to begin to wrap their head around China? Yeah. um, I mean, there are a lot of good books. I think, uh, I mean, one that I really enjoyed, um, which won a lot of awards, is The Age of Ambition by Evan Osnos from The New Yorker, which is really like personal tales of of China um, and you know, the people in China and how everybody is trying to get ahead, changing China, which really, I mean, it's maybe seven years old now, but it still very much encapsulates that zeal. Uh, And more recently, uh, Elizabeth Economy at the Council on Foreign Relations wrote a great book about Xi Jinping and his leadership of China, uh, which I found really helpful when I was coming here and... um, and beginning to you know learn about the leadership here because you know he's extraordinary he when he came became the leader in 2012 people thought that he was going to be kind of liberal and open-minded because um, his father had been that way had been a reformer in the communist party i mean in much the same way people thought about kim jong-un that he was going to be you know for different reasons was going to be a reformer mm-hmm. But, you know, Xi Jinping has now become the strongest, most ideological leader in China since Mao and has embarked on all these really repressive policies, you know, whether it's in Xinjiang to try to repress and they call it Sinicize, the uh, Uyghur Muslim minority, uh, the political controls, the surveillance, you know, facial recognition cameras everywhere that, um, you know, even if you're wearing a mask and a... um, uh, sunglasses and things, they will still uh, know that it's you. 
Um, they can still tell, they can measure your ears and things. So, I mean, the level of control in China is really, uh, I think, quite surprising to even, you know, somebody who's read about it in the way. I mean, there's this new system of social credit where people and companies get like a financial credit score, but on their social behavior. So if like when you go on the high speed train in China, there's a message that comes on in Chinese and in English saying if you act in an antisocial way, which can mean like dropping trash or talking too loudly, it will be video recorded and it will count against your social credit score. So there's so much that's like so Orwellian that's going on here. That's intense. What's the what is that social like how? How does that work against you? If mine's bad, how does that impact my, my life? Yeah, so if you have a bad score, you are not allowed to uh, fly on planes. You're not allowed to go on the high-speed rail. You have to like instead take like third-class rail or whatever that takes five times as long. Uh, I think it has impact on your job uh, possibilities. If you work for a state company, maybe you get in trouble. Maybe it cuts you off from things. So people can like earn their credit back by doing... Um, good work in the community or just by writing a check to the government basically uh but so but it is the system that's really intrusive and invasive and there's uh there's a great story of a, a foreign guy who was living in Shenzhen in the south which is where Huawei is located and which is this very advanced city and he jaywalked on the street and the facial recognition camera got him and automatically find him by deducting money from the app on his phone that he uses to pay things. So it was like a $7 fine or something. But when he checked his WeChat, which is this ubiquitous like chat, payment, Facebook style app, there was, yeah, 50, 50 quite fine, just like that. So he didn't even have to put his finger on it or whatever to, to allow uh -huh. them to do that. So there's a lot of stories like this about the way that that social engineering is, um, is happening here. Are there many jugglers in China? Jugglers? Juggalos, uh, the you know makeup wearing fans of the insane clown posse, uh, not jugglers. No, yeah, the insane cl clown posse fans because I read that they were the only ones who were able to defeat uh, facial recognition technology. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> I'll, I'll find the story. We'll, we'll post it in the show notes. But yeah, please do. I mean, I'd like car. to read that. Clearly, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I have not seen any jugglers or any juggalos. <laughs> it's a damn shame. Well, there was some story a while back about, uh, I think the FBI had put the juggalos on a list of some sort of domestic terrorists, and I think mm -hmm. they went to court and fought against it and won, something like I that. I can't believe well, I missed there, this important they, story. They did like a big march in Washington. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah, so, yeah the juggalos march, march on Washington. Yeah, I can't remember. Fascinating subculture. Was, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think you said something about pressure on media and also pressure on, you know, people talking to media, especially foreign media. Um, but I'm curious, what is the perception of the Washington Post inside China? And, and I know you haven't been there in that role for very long, but I wonder if its perception has changed uh, under the ownership of Jeff Bezos or under its uh, assault by Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, 
generally, I don't know that many people would know about the change in ownership from the Grahams to Jeff Bezos and things like that. But generally, yeah, the Washington Post and New York Times, of course, have a great reputation. And people know that they're very famous newspapers and very influential. I mean, people would probably associate uh, the Washington Post with Watergate still. Um, and, you know, but you can buy Catherine Graham's autobiography in Chinese in the bookstore. In fact, I did do that. I, I bought one. Um, but now, you know, the, the Washington Post has been... Um, should I just wait for that noise? Yeah, hold on one sec, sorry. Uh, the Washington Post is now blocked in China, so you can't uh, go online and just read the Washington Post or the New York Times or, wow. I mean, BBC, a huge number of outside media are blocked uh, unless you have a VPN here. And now many VPNs are also blocked. Um, so, I mean, we don't have a lot of readership in China for that reason. But, uh, but like the foreign ministry, the powers here know that the Washington Post is very influential in the United States and they do monitor what we're writing very closely. I mean, we will get called in to drink tea uh, at the foreign ministry if we've written a story they don't like. And, and how, how is that dance done? How do, how do they get that across and, and, and is there an ask? Yeah, I mean, usually it's just um, broad complaints about things. So my most recent uh, episode involved yeah, so an official saying to me, you know, Anna, why is the Western press not reporting about all of the great things that China has done for Hong Kong over the past 20 years? You know, why are you not reporting that this is a, a CIA-backed campaign to overthrow, blah, blah, blah? So it's these kind of the, very much the Chinese government line, but um, trying to push it upon us. I mean, the foreign ministry sent all foreign correspondents here a 64-page PDF um, file of guidelines for reporting on Hong Kong. So they try to strong arm us. Uh, I mean, obviously that has no impact on our reporting. Um, I mean, we do go to the foreign ministry, we do talk to official sources, and we do make sure, of course, to uh, include their point of view, but, um, but we still write the stories we need to write in the way we think that it uh, they should be told. I mean, so the way that the authorities express their displeasure is by throwing journalists out or by curtailing their visas. So we've seen this really um, sharp change to usually a journalist visa is one year in China and increasingly people are getting six month visas or three month visas as a way you know they're trying to make us censor ourselves by thinking like oh I have to apply again in three months I better not write anything about Xinjiang or about Hong Kong or something in the next three months um, in fact, I think it's self-defeating because anybody who gets a three-month visa says, you know, I have to show them that I will not be cowed and like will redouble their efforts to write about these kind of things to show that it doesn't work. But um, yeah, recently a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal was kicked out of China after five years here um, because he'd been involved in writing stories about uh, Xi Jinping's cousin and his you know, gambling activities in Australia. You mentioned uh, Xinjiang, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, you wrote about Eric Prince opening up some facility there. Have there been any new developments in that? 
Yeah, funnily enough, Eric Prince doesn't send out a lot of uh, tweets about what they're doing in Xinjiang. <laughs> no, we had heard that they'd been involved in some training camps there. Um, uh, his new company had been involved training police and things. There hasn't been any new news about that recently, but also like the situation in Xinjiang has really evolved a lot. Uh, so like three years ago when this all began, that government in Beijing started like rounding up Uyghur Muslims and calling them radicals and terrorists and saying that they needed to go. Well, at the beginning, they weren't saying anything at all. They were just rounding them up and putting them in these huge internment camps where they were forced to like sing songs in Chinese about the you know, Xi Jinping, about the Communist Party declaring allegiance. Um, really, this kind of brainwashing campaign and a lot of alarming reports about yeah, them uh, having to shave their beards, having to eat pork, having to eat, uh, drink alcohol and all these things that are against their faith. And so for the first year or two, China denied that these camps even existed. Um, but then once there was so much reporting about them and satellite images and things, they did start to uh, say, yes, acknowledge their existence and say that they were like vocational training camps aimed at de-radicalizing this population, which of course nobody believed. Um, but now, just in the last few months, they've started to say that this has been a success, that people are being released into the community. And sure, some people are being released, um, but it's not in any way over. I mean, there are still a lot of camps, a lot of people in camps, maybe a million of them. But the Beijing is able to release people now because they've turned this huge swath of Western China into a police state. You know, I was there recently. There's uh, police boxes or police officers on every single major intersection looking out across uh, intersections. Uyghurs have to show their ID to go into the park, to go into the supermarket. There's facial recognition everywhere. There's like airport style security. People are terrified still. So nobody, you know, when I went there to report about a woman who'd been in a camp and then now been arrested and put in jail, um, I didn't even try to contact her family because I knew that that would put them in danger. Uh, I talked to family members outside of China, but you know, as a reporter, I want to talk to people, right? I did not do that, not because of me, but because of them. The facial recognition would clock that I was there, was visiting them, they can track me on my phone or what have you. Mm. Um, and so it's really changed the way that we can report, but, um, but still, you know, so important to try and do it. And a lot of journalists have been doing great reporting on what's happening in Xinjiang and, and showing the um, lies that the Chinese government is telling. I wanted to ask you, when it comes to being really critical of China, you mentioned kind of that the government will check in with you and sort of maybe be pleased with you or maybe um, implicitly sort of threaten that you might get kicked out of the country or might have problems with your visa on a scale of one to 10, one being that the government loves you and they're really happy and they want you there and 10 being that they're about to kick you out. Where do you see yourself in on that spectrum? Uh, I would say six. Uh, I have been here only a year. I haven't done a huge amount of reporting on Xinjiang. I mean, I have done some, 
but not um not you know we're only two people in our bureau and we have to cover everything so a lot of my first year has been taken up by trade war so it's very different from a like a bigger bureau where somebody can focus almost entirely on Xinjiang and human rights abuses and stuff like that so I don't feel like um yeah my visa is in in question at the moment um but you know I've reported from a lot of places where authoritarian governments try these tactics you know Syria Iran North Korea of course uh places where they use visas as a means of control and I think you know we have to write what we need to write we need to be true to our mission uh you know and our responsibility to the public and just you know I in any of these places in Iran when I was on rolling 3 month visas I would write what I needed to write because I think um you know you can never know where their red line is going to be and what's going to be the thing that you know tips them over the edge um I think yeah you just need to be honest with your readers and and write the stories you know and if you get kicked out then what can you do uh so i think i take the same approach here where um i know that in my stories if i'm being um fair and accurate and i'm giving the chinese government a opportunity to respond and have their say and things then you know i'm doing my job yeah well said you can turn to north korea you've just written uh my favorite book about north korea Thank ever. you. Uh, the great successor, the divinely perfect destiny of brilliant comrade Kim Jong Un. Obviously, and, one in know, which you play uh, a starring role. Oh well, thanks. <laughs> yes, uh, my pleasure. Um, but I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about China North Korea relations, or you know, Kim Shi, the Kim Shi relationship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I mean, these two guys. There is no love lost there. Uh, they, you know, Xi Jinping came in two thousand twelve. Kim Jong Un had been there for a year by that stage. You know, Kim Jong Un's half Xi Jinping's age, which is a big deal in these Confucian societies. Um, but from the get go, you know, Kim Jong Un was just like flipping the bird to Xi Jinping the whole time. Like he did not. He never made that traditional pilgrimage to Beijing where he, you know. Kowtowed to the emperor and you know did what he needed to do and like his father had done. I'm sorry. When when was his first visit to China? Oh, it wasn't until 2018. I mean, oh, yes. as leader, as leader, he went um, with his father in like 2009, I think it was, uh, before he became the leader. But usually, you would have expected him. Like China is North Korea's only remaining friend. You would have expected Kim Jong Un to get on the train pretty quickly and come to Beijing and. See Xi Jinping and like say the diplomatic things that he needed to say. He did not do that, and、uh, on the contrary, he seemed to go out of his way to anger and antagonize and humiliate Xi Jinping. So, I mean, why? He was showing him that he's you know <laughs> nobody's、uh, you know lackey. I think、um, he was. But isn't he their lackey? No, I mean yes no. and no. I mean he is very dependent on China.、Uh, North Korea has always been very dependent on China, despite their so-called you know self-reliance policy.、Um, but he also knows that China can't just cut him loose. China really cares about stability in the North Korean regime and keeping North Korea intact, so that they don't have this unification and American troops on their border and. 
they like having North Korea as a buffer zone. So I think Kim Jong-un correctly um, calculated that Xi Jinping would not do anything to topple him or destabilize him in any way. But, you know, look, two years in, Kim Jong-un had his uncle executed. Uh, his uncle was the point man with China, the main economic link, was always in China, had been into the Great Hall of the People in Tiananmen Square where he'd been treated like a head of state. Um, so yeah, that really, really annoyed Xi Jinping. But then also, look, Xi Jinping had all of these uh, huge international forums, the Belt and Road, there was a G20 meeting in Hangzhou in China. Kim Jong-un set off all these missiles right in the middle of these huge forums, like almost literally raining on Xi Jinping's parade. Uh, he didn't shoot them towards China, like that would be suicidal. But, um, but yeah, he was overshadowing them, showing that China had no control over him. Uh, so this was really astonishing, and he didn't really pay any price for it. Uh, because of these factors that I mentioned about Xi Jinping doesn't want to destabilize North Korea. But I think, I mean, all of this changed in 2018 when Xi Jinping began his metamorphosis from, you know, nuclear armed tyrant into like misunderstood benevolent dictator. And he started coming out to the world and agreed to meet with the South Korean president, with Donald Trump. And he knew, I think, that he could not go and meet Donald Trump without having met Xi Jinping, first of all. And I think also Xi Jinping wanted to insert himself into this process. He did not want diplomacy proceeding without his influence. So for pragmatic reasons, I think the two of them agreed to meet. Kim Jong-un came to uh, China, you know, he's been four times now, uh, and began before he went and met any of these other people. Um, but I don't think there's been any great improvement in the relationship. I think this is entirely pragmatic, entirely, um, you know, knowing what they need to do. Uh, and then, you know, Kim Jong-un's been really trying to diversify uh, his diplomatic relationships. You know, we saw him go to Vladivostok and meet Putin and things because they really don't like how dependent they are on China. Which, I mean, I guess in a way would be quite nostalgic, right? If you could manage to get aid from both China and Russia, then it would be kind of the glory days of Kim Il-sung. That's right. Stalin, you know, Mao, Redux. <laughs> Speaking of which... Uh, I don't know if you've already weighed in on this, uh, on, on reading the tea leaves of Kim Jong-un riding the white stallion on Mount uh, Pek Pektu. Pektu, is that Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole kind of thesis of my book and the reason why I wanted to write it is because, you know, I keep saying, like, Kim Jong-un is not a cartoon character. He's not a joke. He's serious. He has nukes. He has power. We should take him seriously. And then he goes and does stuff like this. And I'm like, come on, you know, how can we not laugh at this? Like comedy photos and all these memes about Narnia uh, of Kim Jong-un, this massive guy on a white horse, you know, that's all decked out, all blinged up, uh, you know, riding through a forest path and things. Yeah, it's like you would think it was photoshopped. Um, I mean, when I looked at that, I thought, you know, he's trying to 
bolster his legitimacy. Um, this is something that his grandfather did and his father did riding these white horses. I mean, and they say that white horses now are uh, a symbol of Kim Il-sung, the founding father of North Korea. Um, but Pekdu is the mythical homeland of the Korean people and the place where, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un says that he has Pekdu blood running through his veins. So this is all about like regime legitimacy and family line and saying Kim Jong-un is the rightful heir to this uh, dynasty. So, I mean, why he did it now, I don't know. Uh, people say that it may be uh, presaging some big event and the lines that were repeated in the state media at that time was like another new victory kind of thing. So... Is he, is he up to something? Are we going to see another nuclear test or something or a satellite launch in the next few weeks? Like, possibly. Uh, but maybe it's also entirely for domestic political purposes. I mean, this was all over the uh, domestic media. And in fact, I mean, one thing that's really interesting, there's this, you know, the, the newsreader, Ri Chun-hee, who's now in her 70s, um, she's only wheeled out for the really big news. Like, the deaths of leaders, uh, hydrogen bomb tests, intercontinental ballistic missile launches. She came out and announced the news of Kim Jong Un riding his white stead on uh, steed on um, on Mount Pekdu. So they're saying to the domestic audience, this is a big deal. Uh, we still need to wait and watch carefully to see what the big deal is. Is this some sort of substitute for him not having a photo of him with his grandfather? Something yeah. you mentioned in the book. Yeah, I mean, all the time from the day that he, uh, you know, first made his debut in public, he's been trying to appear as the reincarnation of his grandfather. Uh, because Kim Il-sung to this day, and even among people who have escaped from North Korea, is revered as this... Um, you know, great visionary, revolutionary leader of North Korea. Like when he was the leader, North Korea was strong. Like they had Stalin's backing, Mao's backing. The North Korean economy was bigger than South Korea's until the late 1970s. So people now associate Kim Il-sung in that era with the good old days. And Kim Jong-un has really tried to channel that. I mean, the weird hairdo, the outfits, the old-fashioned glasses. I mean, he's not a Williamsburg hipster wearing the horn-rimmed glasses. You know, this is the stuff that his, um, his grandfather was wearing. And, you know, when I've talked to people, North Koreans who have escaped, about the first time they ever saw him, they say, like, you know, they gasp because they were surprised by just how similar he looks to his grandfather. So that's obviously very contrived. Uh, the weight gain is also part of that, though he seems to have gone a little overboard. Uh, he could have he could have <laughs> stopped like 100 pounds ago and still looked like his grandfather. Um, but, you know, this is all designed to boost his legitimacy and to present himself as the rightful successor to this dynasty. Because, yeah, he doesn't have a photo of himself with his grandfather, which would be just like propaganda gold for him. And he apparently blamed his uncle for that, the uncle he had executed that was possibly part of the reason, uh, because that uncle had backed his older half-brother, Kim Jong-un's older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, you know, who he also got rid of in a very stunning fashion 
in Kuala Lumpur Airport. Um, and so he blamed them for undermining him and pro, uh, you know, potentially creating rivals to the, um, to the leadership. Anna, I was just curious about sort of your life or career trajectory, just how you kind of came to be a Western journalist living and working in Asia. Is that something that you set as a goal a long time ago or something that, that kind of developed over, over time um, mm-hmm. as you were working? Yeah, um, thanks for asking. I, yeah, as you can tell by my funny accent, I am not American. I'm New Zealander and I yeah, grew up there and spent the first 24 years of my life in New Zealand. Um, but I always wanted to be a foreign correspondent uh, and, you know, growing up in the 90s and things I remember seeing, yeah, the Balkan War and Rwanda and all this kind of stuff and thinking that this looked like an amazing job to be there and reporting on this kind of stuff. Um, so I got a lucky break and I went to the Financial Times in London in the year 2000. Um, and so I worked there on, I was supposed to go for three months. I ended up staying for 13 years. But once I got in there, I, I immediately put my hand up to be a foreign correspondent, applied for this job in Belgrade, which I had no chance of getting. But then they sent me to Australia to cover maternity leave for six months, which was great. And then I guess I did a good job because they said to me, like, how about going to Korea? I had never been to Asia. I, you know, nowhere in Asia, not even Bali or Singapore or something. But I always said yes. And, you know, a few weeks later, I was on a plane. I'd never even eaten kimchi before I moved to Korea. You know, I was totally new. But I knew that that was, you know, it was very exciting because it was such a multi multifaceted story. Um, as a Financial Times correspondent there covering, yeah, South Korea and Samsung and K-pop and all this kind of stuff, but just North Korea as well. And I was really lucky in getting into North Korea. So my first visit in 2005, I went by myself for two weeks uh, on the train in from Beijing. So it was really like unusual to get that kind of access. Uh, and that just became the start of this lifelong obsession. I didn't know it then, but it's become one. So I spent four years doing a lot of North Korea. Uh, I went to Pyongyang five times in that period and crossed the border into the tourist zone, Kumgangsan, and this industrial park inside North Korea uh, from South Korea. Uh, and then I went off and did other things. I moved to Iran. I was in the Middle East, Beirut and things. And then I moved to Washington. Uh, another, you know, nuclear armed state <laughs> at that time uh, and covered, you know, the 2012 election campaign and things. Um, and but then the Washington Post had remembered the work that I had done in Korea. Uh, and so when the job in Japan came up, they offered me the chance to go back to live in Japan and cover Japan and the Koreas. And I really jumped at it, um, partly because I wanted to move to the Washington Post. I thought, you know, it's a very exciting newspaper, really got its mojo back once Jeff Bezos came along. Um, but also a lot of it was because I felt like I had unfinished business with North Korea, uh, that I had not, you know, I'd been watching it from afar. And I felt like even though I'd done quite a lot of human rights reporting with the FT, I felt I hadn't done enough. So I really wanted to try to show how the people of North Korea were living, uh, you know, and to humanize them and to show that they are 
the victims on a daily basis of the regime, you know, not just once every three months when they release a KCNA statement about blowing up Manhattan or something, uh, that it's a daily real threat to these 25 million people. But also just like, I was so fascinated. I'd been going to North Korea uh, under Kim Jong-il and I just could not imagine how this anachronistic regime could survive and transition to a third generation. So then to see that Kim Jong-un had done it, you know, it was two years in, he was still there. Uh, he appeared strong, you know, strong enough to be able to knock off his uncle very publicly. So I was just like, as a personal curiosity, I was like, I need to go back and try and figure this out. I mean, and that was the genesis for writing this book as well, to figure out how Kim Jong-un had just defied the expectations and to report on how life was had had changed under his regime so that's what i did um and so then i'd spent eight years in asia and yeah like i said it's just china seemed like a really logical next um next step because it's the dominant country in asia and the world and you know this side of the world so um yeah so i i fell in, that's a long way of saying i kind of just fell into asia by accident i didn't have any background here that's great. That's fascinating. That's an exciting uh, journey. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so lucky. It is exciting. I love I love my job and being here and just being able to wander and ask questions. And yeah, it's great. On that note, I mean, look, we've talked a lot about North Korean leaders and politicians and international politics, but I, I, I've never had the chance to ask you a bit more about your trips uh, to North Korea and just kind of uh, any anecdotes you might care to uh, share with us? Uh, I think you made at least one reference to drinking culture in North Korea, which I, I, I found also uh, quite aggressive uh, when yes. I was there for my very brief time. Yeah. Um, I would like to hear about your experiences with that and anything else that, that stood out. Yeah, I mean, it's really notable, like when I've, you know, when you see people, you know, there's a lot of people with ruddy faces and like, telltale signs of drinking far too much. I think this is really a coping mechanism for many people in Pyongyang. And you see people drinking their soju, which is like North Korean rice wine, like vodka, I guess. But they don't just drink it by the thimbleful. Like they'll down a cup of this, like a teacup of soju at lunchtime and things. And I, you see people doing that. I think that's maybe how people... Um, numb the reality of daily life in North Korea. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of methamphetamine usage in North Korea as well. Ice uh, is really widely used. And in my reporting, I wrote about one guy who was a, a border guard and turned him into a drug dealer in North Korea on the border. Um, and he would say, yeah, he'd pay off the local police chief by giving him meth uh, at lunchtime and he was even giving his own mother methamphetamine for her uh, her um, high blood pressure so this kind of is that good for high blood pressure? apparently he told me like appetite suppressant I'll, I'll, study I'll aid yeah like it's um, I mean there is a lot I'm sure of, it's available in Cicero <laughs> uh, there's a lot of um, this going on I think because people try to numb the pain um but in terms yeah my my trips as well like yours have involved you know witnessing a various amounts of drunkenness and karaoke and things and i mean one story i will tell you is i don't know if you remember your listeners remember the film team america 
mm-hmm. about the puppets and the Kim Jong-il dolls feeding the UN weapons inspector to the sharks and things. But um, at one time... Hans I was, Bricks, yeah. Yeah, Hans Bricks, Hans Bricks, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, so one time when I was meeting with some North Koreans and they'd been drinking a lot, you know, and it was very loud and uh, energetic, you know, like dinner. And so I just quietly said to one person who I'd been chatting to while it was loud and why he'd just taken a drink of his soju and I said have you ever seen Team America like that? And he like sprayed his soldier across the table because he was so taken aback and started laughing. And then like a second later composed to himself and he's like, Team America? What is this Team America? Uh, but you know, it was very clear that he had seen it and things. And so little, like I don't put those kind of things into my reporting, but um I think, you know, things like that show that even people who work for the regime have, are and, you know, see this kind of stuff and know this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like there's signs of the permeation of American films in particular throughout North Korea. I think I, I may have mentioned to you that one of the only times I was alone with a minder, there wasn't a third party there. He said, you know, you know, we used to study American movies in school to learn English. And I was like, oh, really? Uh, what, what, do you have a favorite? And he's like, true lies. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, yeah. like, oh, you're learning English from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is kind of insane. Yeah, but also I th- in, in your book, you, you mentioned something about the scene which caught, uh, which got, got a lot of attention at the summit in Singapore, which was of Kim Jong-un's security running alongside his limousine and uh you want to tell us where that was what the inspiration for that was it came from clint eastwood (laughs) so kim jong-un had watched apparently the clint eastwood film in the line of fire uh, and had noticed that the bodyguards were running along beside the car of the president there and your Clint Eastwood there running at the front corner of the car. And he apparently liked the idea of this. And that is where these comical running bodyguards uh, came from. So we saw, yeah, like 12 of them in suits and leather dress shoes running beside the limo and the DMZ when Kim Jong-un crossed into South Korea. Uh, Yeah, but also like I was there in Singapore. It was like... 80 something degrees, really humid. And here these poor guys are running in suits uh, on the streets alongside the, uh, the thing. But I guess, I mean, it captured everybody's imagination because it was so, um, so comical. Uh, maybe Kim Jong-un feels he needs it, but, or maybe he feels like a little bit uh, like he's having his own Hollywood moment. But obviously there is devotion to Kim Jong-un. And I guess a question for you is, again, it's hard to generalize uh, about broad swaths of the population, but I guess to what degree is that based in fear and in, or, or to what degree is that legitimate, like true awe of this godlike figure? Yeah. Um, I think there are some people in North Korea who believe it who have, you know, been indoctrinated into the system. Uh, You know, like the brainwashing, attempted brainwashing begins from kindergarten in North Korea and permeates every aspect of life. So people don't get a, a, it's difficult to get a different point of view or something else. So I think there are people who 
have heard this so many times that they believe it and maybe do uh, revere him in some way. But I don't think that's anything close to a majority. I think that the vast majority of the general population now, you know, knows that North Korea is backwards uh, compared to other countries in the region. Like, almost everybody uh, has now seen Chinese films and South Korean soap operas and all of this outside media that's smuggled in on USB drives or SD cards. Um, so they know uh, the truth of the outside world and that, uh, you know, that, that's not normal the way that they are living but it's because of fear that they can't do anything about it like you said they are um you know terrified of running afoul of this regime and kim jong-un while he has allowed some economic change in north korea he has not let up at all on any of the repression in north korea so if you commit a political crime as it's called where you know if you question why North Korea is spending all this money on nuclear weapons when they can't even feed themselves or if you suggest like why is Kim Jong-un the right person to be our leader and things that is the kind of comment that would have the so-called perpetrator sent to a gulag for the rest of their lives but not just them it's a three it's they run this guilt by association system so three generations of that person's family would go to a concentration camp basically hard labor camp uh, so you may be willing to take the risk and to criticize the leader but are you willing to have your parents and your spouse and your children consigned to you know work in a mine for almost no food in the mountains for the rest of their life and for the huge overwhelming majority of people the answer is of course no so that is why they are um that people don't criticize or rise up against him I think because of fear and one defector said to me you know if you disagree with the system you don't try to change it you try to escape from it uh, I think that's how the regime has stayed intact but um, in addition to that I think there is another factor going on at the top and that Kim Jong-un has really tried to um, create this layer of North Korean oligarchs these elite people who have become really corrupt and really rich under him. I mean, it was existing before anyway, but he's really accelerated it a lot to create this whole elite class of people who are getting rich and living the high life under him and who owe their entire loyalty and privilege and status to him. And that that's a status that they would not have if they'd escaped to South Korea or to China. So... It's partly through fear, it's partly through a sense of loyalty that he's done this. Uh, but I think, you know, again, this is a pragmatic kind of thing that a lot of regime officials know that they benefit from the system in a way that they wouldn't if they had to, if they escaped and tried to live in a freer country. Sounds like a very Silicon Valley approach in terms of getting, <laughs> getting people, people you know, addicted, addicted to, to money. money, you know, getting this small circle of people vested literally and then you know giving them enough rewards to keep them you know yeah. happy enough, enough to be looking, looking the other way and yeah know, and i think uh, i think the kombucha is better in silicon valley <laughs> yeah little, still a little more freedom <laughs> oh on that note i wanted to share speaking of freedom uh, a, a tweet i saw today here Hold on. sorry now i've just lost it um it was a bloomberg opinion writer 
who said that uh, yesterday a white Trump supporter told me that if Elizabeth Warren wins the election, he'll move to China. Uh, it was. He says it was interesting to hear him reflexively think of China as the beacon of rightist values, the way someone on the left might think of Canada. <laughs> Any comment? Well, uh, I is, mean, is is, is 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 do you think that China should Donald Trump uh, be impeached and removed from office or lose the election? Do you think we'll see a flood of Americans moving to China? I do not. I do not think we'll see that. I mean, as a New Zealander, we had, a, you know, remember a lot of people, including, you know, very famously Ruth Bader Ginsburg, saying they would move to New Zealand if uh, Donald Trump won. <laughs> I don't think there's been a mass uh, exodus to New Zealand, influx in New Zealand. Um, you know, this kind of tweet, this is music to Xi Jinping's ears. This is exactly the kind of position he is trying to stake out for himself. And, you know, at Davos and in his speeches in the world, he has presented himself as a beacon of multilateralism and globalism uh, and a counterpoint to Donald Trump. Um, I mean, he is certainly not uh, that. I mean, he is trying to globalize on China's terms by, you know, exporting China's authoritarian model to countries and making countries beholden to China through huge infrastructure projects and huge loans that will keep them indebted to China for years. Um, so I think, yeah, that this kind of idea misses a lot of the reality of living in China. And um, I, I would not... I would not say that China is the obvious counterpoint to Elizabeth Warren or uh, or to Donald Trump for that matter. And you know, China, the Chinese government might have ideas about um, about this too. We all need visas. This is maybe a obvious or a dumb observation, but I had heard that about those that in North Korea, they'll kind of send people away for like supposedly three generations. And in the really worst camps, they actually don't get any of the like great leader indoctrination. They're just like, oddly, they don't bother. But I'm thinking like they don't actually monitor three generations and then on the fourth one, pull them back out and try and put them back into society, right? If you go to that kind of camp, it's just kind of over from there on out for your if you're even able to procreate, I think. Right, right. So when that third generation has babies, those babies are born into the camp and stay in the camp. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there, yeah, there have have been reports that they don't, and the indoctrination is not so strong in these, the most severe form of camps. Yeah, because they don't expect that those people are ever going to go out. So they don't need to, like, prepare them for society in that same, or to live in this, in the strictures of this regime in the same ways. They just... Um, have them working, you know, nonstop uh, in right. mines and yeah, doing other kinds of hard labor. So, yeah, it's very. I mean, there are very few people have actually escaped from these camps. Uh, so the testimony that we have on them is quite limited. And in fact, I tried really hard to find somebody who'd been in the um, camps under Kim Jong Un, and I couldn't find anybody. And people who deal with this, you know, in South Korea as their full time job didn't know of anybody who had escaped to South Korea in the previous, like, six years. So, I mean, this it's difficult to know exactly what that means, whether Kim Jong-un is, is really not letting people out of any kind of camps, or whether it's just that they haven't managed to escape from North Korea after being released. I wanted to ask you about Kenji Fujimoto, Kim Jong-un's personal sushi chef, who you tracked down in Japan and wrote about extensively in the book. Um, 
But I, I read a story recently that he had apparently returned to North Korea and had been detained in Pyongyang, and, and then the story just seems to have gone cold, or at least I haven't seen any follow-ups on that. I was just wondering if you know anything about that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did. I met him several times in Japan. He's a really strange guy, even by the uh, standards of people who deal with North Korea or go and choose to live in North Korea with a pretty strange bunch. Uh, anyway, um, but yeah, he had lived in the royal household all of Kim Jong-un's childhood, basically, and then escaped in about the year 2000. Uh, he was on a, I think, on a fish buying trip in Japan, and he just never went back. Until 2012, he did go back and see Kim Jong-un and beg for forgiveness. And he had a wife and two children who remained in, they're North Korean, and who remained in North Korea. So he had gone back several times to see them. Uh, his 20-something-year-old son apparently died of a heart attack uh, just before his return. Um, he would have been in doing his military service, so, I mean, make what you will of that. It seems very bizarre for a 24-year-old to die of a heart attack. Um, but So Kenji Fujimoto had been going back, and then on one trip he does appear to have stayed. What we don't know is whether this was voluntary, you know, whether he just wanted to live with his wife and child um, or whether the North Koreans have kept him there. Uh, but he now, he lives in Pyongyang and he runs a little sushi bar in the middle of Pyongyang that has eight seats and apparently charges New York prices for sushi. Uh, I hear it's not bad, pretty good in fact, uh, by any standards, not just by Pyongyang standards. Um, but and his daughter works in the restaurant there with him, uh, so they are there. But yeah, at the beginning of this year, a story came out that he had disappeared from sight, and there was a lot of speculation about uh, what had happened to him. I mean, actually, this came this story emerged after my book came out in June, and so there was some speculation, like was he in trouble because of my book? Um, mm. I think that was definitely not the case, because I mean, everything in the book. Uh, had been reported before. He's written four books of his own already uh, about his time in North Korea. So I think it was unrelated. But anyway, a few weeks later, it, um, he, you know, the British ambassador in Pyongyang tweeted a photo of himself with Fujimoto in the restaurant having sushi. Uh. So if he had gone, he is now back. Uh, and the sushi restaurant continues to run. Um, yeah, it's just another one of those mysteries that we don't know about. We don't know what happened, you know, whether he was detained, re-educated in some way. You know, maybe he was sick. We don't know. Gotcha. Gotcha. It was around the same time that an Australian who had been living in Pyongyang was also detained and accused of spying. And I mean, he was then released. So I think that helped fuel the idea that something was amiss and that foreigners were being um, in the middle of a crackdown in North Korea. Going back to something you said at the beginning about, you know, China being the big story in the U.S., we are uh, we've kind of lost all international news, <laughs> unless it relates directly to Donald Trump, which China news often does uh, due to, you know, Donald Trump, Donald, the Donald uh, being the king of creating crises uh, for him to then pretend to have solved. Um, but I guess a question for you is what should we be watching? What's coming up in China that, you know, if while we're being bombarded by impeachment proceedings and things like that we might otherwise miss 
what's something to keep our eye on in the next the year out a year out yeah um you know thank goodness that kim jong-un and uh dennis rodman had taught me so much about the nba right because this nba uh big <clears throat> scandal that blew up in china recently i think um managed to get American attention on the situation in Hong Kong in a way that it had not before, right? Like this was just something happening in China, you know, peripheral, but the NBA brought it into a lot of uh, America, brought it to a lot of Americans' attention, what was happening. I think the Hong Kong situation is a really huge problem for Xi Jinping. You know, Xi Jinping has this vision of, you know, basically making China great again. Uh, he talks about how China was humiliated over the centuries and forced to give in to foreign powers on too many occasions. And he wants to return China to its rightful place at the center of the world, to its like rightful glory and power and with him as the head of it. And so everything that he does is centered around this grand goal. Uh, so that is a lot, what a lot of the confrontation with the United States is about. Uh, but also, I mean, so Hong Kong poses something of an existential crisis to China, even though it's very geographically discreet. Um, the idea that people are demonstrating, are questioning the leadership in Beijing, um, uh, you know, that maybe this could give ideas to people in mainland China, you know, who also have very high housing prices and a lot of and no freedom of speech and things and a lot of the things that Hong Kongers are talking about. I think that poses a big risk to Xi Jinping. And like, so I think, I mean, the, how he responds to that, um, because the Hong Kong protests are not going away is a really huge question. Um, not just because of Hong Kong itself, but because of the message that this sends to the people in Taiwan. So Beijing views Taiwan as this like renegade, breakaway state that should be reunified with the mainland. And Xi Jinping talks all the time about the reunification of China and wanting to bring Taiwan back to the fold. And uh, Taiwan has this very skeptical like china skeptical president uh right now and sighing when and she's up for re-election in january next year uh very democratic pro you know pro democracy uh, leader and if she is re-elected the chances of reunification of taiwan and china become a lot slimmer i think it becomes a generational issue with this whole generation of young Taiwanese people don't consider China to be the motherland anymore. So for the longest time, Beijing had said to Taiwanese people, you know, like, oh, look at Hong Kong, one country, two systems, you can have this. Now the people of Hong Kong are saying to Taiwan, look what might happen to you. You know, there is no one country, two systems. It's a real mm -hmm. warning. So this is the the bigger concern for Xi Jinping, I think, the effect that this could have on Taiwan, that there could be a second term for Tsai Ing-wen there, and that China could lose the sentiment in Taiwan. Uh, and there's a lot of people who think that maybe because of this, Xi Jinping might try something more confrontational. Maybe 
not complete military action, but he may make a play for Taiwan at some stage over the course of his leadership, uh, which, by the way, is not ending anytime soon because he scrapped term limits, uh, and so he could be president of China for the rest of his life. And he's only 66 years old right now, so that could be a long time. So I think there are these yeah, really big uh, questions about where Xi Jinping is taking China in terms of China's might and power um, and how he is trying to position it in the world and make sure that China has this huge sphere of influence um, through, I mean, we see this playing out through the Belt and Road Project where they're building ports and, you know, um, infrastructure projects, bridges and high-speed rail in all sorts of countries around the world. You know, he has a lot of... Uh, links with Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and these other Muslim-majority countries which have not said a peep about the persecution of Muslim people in Xinjiang. So you see how this checkbook diplomacy really works in uh, Xi Jinping's favor and creates allies where there might not have been allies. Um, so I think this is a trend that we're going to continue to see and something that I'm interested in reporting about how Xi Jinping continues this authoritarian progression. And, you know, I talked about how I wanted to write about what North Korean people thought. You know, I'm really interested in how Chinese people think about this um, and how they view what's happening. I mean, and so far, it's pretty scary, I have to say, that when I go out and talk to... Like I talked to this young woman who was like wearing a supreme hoodie in the like glitzy shopping district of Beijing. And she was like saying these Hong Kong, you know, she was completely with the Chinese government when it came to Hong Kong and saying, you know, these Hong Kong people should be grateful for what they've got and they shouldn't be protesting and they're lucky to be part of China. And um, it works. It's scary. Well, Anna Fifield, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, have I pronounced your name correctly? You did. Well done. <laughs> oh, did oh, okay. Sorry. I was just suddenly uh, became self-conscious that it yeah. wasn't as it was spelled. No, perfect. Uh, well, Jason. I don't know why I did that. Like I'm some sort of radio announcer. There's just three of us talking and two people listening. So. Yeah. Anna Fifield, thank you again for joining us. Well, uh, thanks for having thank me on. Really enjoy the rest of your uh, Friday in Beijing. Yeah, thank you very much.